I'd like to invite you to turn to the last wisdom book in the Bible, and that's the book of Song of Solomon. As you uh, are well aware of, we have been coming through the Bible and really laying out the Bible book by book, trying to give you an overview of how the Bible goes together, not only for you as members of our church, but for those that, uh, you know, years down the line will be, uh, you know, long after this series is done, will be uh, have this available so they can do it in their own home to study and lay out the Word of God. And uh, we've been trying to pay particular attention to how all the books lay out, and uh, yet at the same time kind of put them in a cohesive fashion that you see how your Bible lays out with all the individual books that are in it. And today we're going to talk about the book of Song of Solomon, and that's the last wisdom book uh, that we have. Uh, There's five, we talked about it, and this is the last one. And I've showed you how that each one really represented a different aspect of, uh, of, of God, the Spirit of God, mind of God, the, Spirit of, the mind of the Spirit, the sufferings of Christ, and all of those different aspects. Now when you come to the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon, without a doubt, is the most intimate book in all of the Bible to the Christian. And uh, what we're going to talk about today is really going to help you define um, your own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Ephesians uh, in the New Testament, to always to me, was much like the book of Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. It's a very intimate book also. They both deal with the church. And the aspect here is that as you come through the book of Song of Solomon, you really begin to see uh, some things about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that um, we all need to see. Now, I want to preface my remarks by, by saying this. And, um, you know, <clears throat> when you start dealing with people, <clears throat> I, I always worry a little bit about some of the things that I say. Um, I don't ever really direct at Christians that are just getting their feet into the Word of God. I know uh, in our church there's a number of people that are, are beginning to really put the Bible together for the first time in their life. I mean, you've been saved for a while, you've loved God. I'm not taking anything away from your relationship with God, but you're, you're just are beginning to learn how to put all of this stuff together and, uh, and really build a biblical relationship with God. I'm not saying you didn't have one, I'm just saying building it from a Bible standpoint. You've done well on your own or you wouldn't even be here at this point. And so many times when I start to say things and start to teach the Bible, I, I always tell you that, uh, you know what, I, I always give. Somebody who just starts getting into the Bible or somebody who just gets saved or somebody who just maybe you've been saved but you're just getting plugged in, boy, you know what, I give that person three or four years really to find themselves in the Lord. The last thing I ever want to do is dump uh, guilt on anybody, uh, especially if you're trying to do what's right. So the majority of my remarks when I start to say the things that I say, I'm talking about Christians that have been around for a while who simply should know better or Christians who uh, we have fallen into that trap where we become, you know, lackadaisical in our attitudes toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to say that because, you know, I'm going to say some things today from the book of Song of Solomon that uh, I think uh, are going to help you really define. And I look at it this way. If you're just getting into the Bible, if you're just learning how to put the Word of God together and you're really building your own, redefining some things into your life, this is great for you to take this material and to build it right into where you're at. 
And, uh, you know, but the older we get in, as a Christian, the more we begin to take things for granted. And I want to talk to you today about uh, the one book in the Bible that will always be the reality check for you and for me in our own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's ask God blessing today as we go to his word. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you so much. We thank you for all the things that you do for us. We pray now, Lord, that you'll open up the word of God to us, give us wisdom and insight as we study it. We pray for those, Lord, that are ill today, that you'll watch over them and take care of them, the ones that are traveling, uh, Lord, and either coming back from vacation or going to the, wherever they've got to go. We just pray your hand upon them. We love you, Lord. We ask you now to open up our hearts and our minds and give us clarity of thought in all the things that we have to say today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to talk to you about the background of the book of Song of Solomon because I think it's important. Solomon has a thousand wives. To, to, be, to be exact, the Bible says he has 700 wives, 300 concubines. He has a thousand uh, wives or women that are in his life that uh, he has uh, amassed over the years as being one of the greatest, wisest men uh, that ever walked the face of this planet. And yet we look at that and sometimes we wonder uh, why that is. Certainly it's, it's, it's extravagant to the extreme. Uh, we look at those things and we, and we wonder why. And of course we know that these women in time become the downfall of Solomon. And on one side they represent the, the foolish women or the evil woman in the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes that the young man is told to uh, watch out for. It's almost that Solomon sees this in his own life but has failed to be able to do anything about it. But yet, on top of that, there's another great concept here, a great New Testament principle that begins to unfold in all the story of Solomon. And the fact that he has a thousand wives, the Bible says in, in the book of Proverbs that he searches for a virtuous woman. He has a thousand wives, and yet the Bible clearly tells us that these wives are women who have many strange gods. He has collected them from all around the world. He's got them from Egypt. He's got them from Phoenicia. He's got them from everywhere. And the problem was that they brought their gods in with them when they came. And this becomes ultimately the downfall of Solomon and, uh, and the end of the kingdom of heaven as we know it because it falls apart from there. But in, in his lifetime, we see this great unfolding story which represents the church, you and me. Because those thousand women represent Christianity. Those thousand women represent, now remember now, he's the king. He's a type of God the Father. He's one of our 21 types. These women that are in his life, these thousand women, will represent for us the relationship that we have with God or Christ. And in this folding story, you're going to find that Solomon goes on a search. He looks through these wives and he's looking for a virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 31. And when he finds this woman in Proverbs chapter 31, which brings us to another great point that he only finds one out of a thousand. Now to me, I know what I'm reading here. And I know its implications. And what I'm reading here simply says in a pictural form of what took place in the Old Testament of a person's relationship with God that in reality, there's probably no more than one out of a thousand Christians that really find a meaningful working relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ the way God wants it to be. 
most of us as God's people, not talking about you in particular, but you in general with all of God's people in the world of Christianity, most of us have many gods in our lives. And God usually takes a back seat in our lives to all the other things that we have going. Now, we don't like to admit that, and we would probably say no to that. And whether you ever admit it to me or not, I could care less. The real issue is you have to admit it to yourself and deal with it with God. And the bottom line is simply this. When we're done today, at least you understand the criteria of what really builds a relationship with God, and then you'll have to judge your own life from there. I don't have the ability, nor do I want the ability, to look into your life and define for you where your own relationship with God is. I certainly have enough problem with my own without uh, looking into your life. But I do know this. I do know that this story of Solomon, where he's got a thousand wives, and he looks for throughout that for a virtuous one, and he finds one, only one. And you're told this over and over again in the wisdom books, that there's only one that he finds out of a thousand. And that she is the woman with the virtue, which we know is a picture of the church. We talked about it last week when we, or when we came through the book of Proverbs. We know that this virtuous woman represents the characteristics that you and I should have. And all the areas that we come down through there show the relationship we should have with Christ. And then he says in Proverbs chapter 31 verse 10 that her price is far above rubies. Now this gives us more information on who this woman is because uh, when you go over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, talking about the church, he talks about living stones. When he comes to Matthew chapter 13, verse 46, he tells you the parable of the merchant who traveled far and wide seeking goodly pearls when he found one pearl of great price that he sold all he had and bought that pearl. We know that to be a picture of the church. We know the pearl of great price is a picture of the body of Christ. And so we know that when this virtuous woman, the Bible says her price is far above rubies, and the Bible says in 1 Peter that it's a living stone, it has to be a pearl, because the pearl is the only precious stone that is a live stone. I've told you this before. A craftsman can take a diamond and cut it in half and come forth with two diamonds. A craftsman can take a ruby, cut it in half, and come forth with two rubies. But you'll never be able to, to take a pearl, no matter how great a craftsman you are, and dissect that pearl and have two pearls because a pearl is a living stone. And when you cut it in half, both half die. And we look then at this price far above rubies is a living stone. This woman is a pearl. Oh, but it gets better than that. Because when we begin to enter into the book of Song of Solomon chapter 1, this woman this virtuous woman, this one whose price is far above rubies, this one who represents a pearl, the Bible says that she's black. She's black. She's of Hamitic background, which brings up the point that she is a black pearl. And without a doubt, a black pearl is the most rarest of the pearls that you will ever find. In fact, believe it or not, Solomon said that he searched through his thousand wives, and found one virtuous woman. If you would ask a pearl dealer anywhere in the world today how rare black pearls are, he would tell you, and I've asked two in my lifetime, and they both gave me the same answer, that probably one in a thousand. So what we have here is a woman who is of Hamitic origin. She's black, represents the fact that she is a servant of servants. 
showing us that when you and I get saved, we need to take the attitude of a servant. That's why the first man saved in the Bible in the book of Acts chapter 8, like you and I, is an Ethiopian eunuch, a black man, and it represents for us all that we should be as a Christian. We don't have any rights. We're a servant of servants. We've been bought with a price. We are a goodly pearl, but in those pearls, we are to be a black pearl because of our submissiveness and our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe now you begin to see the implications. The implications here are staggering. The implications are that in the body of Christ, in the body of Christ, it is one out of a thousand Christians that ever figure out how to have the right kind of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And boy, if there's anything that answers the age-old questions that I've been asked about the Laodicean church, how in the world in the millennium is all the people that have been saved down through the history of Christianity, how in the world, how is the earth going to be big enough for all of those people to rule and reign with Christ on little planet earth during the millennium? How in the world will all of the saved people who are part of the body of Christ rule and reign with Him for a thousand years on an earth that is no bigger than planet earth? Well, now you begin to see the answer to that not very many people are going to reign. The implications of this are absolutely staggering. But as you go on down through here, it even becomes more staggering. Because I want to begin to break down for you the book of Song of Solomon. And again, the breakdown is pretty easy. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have a picture of the church age. You have the bride engaged. You have the bride in courtship. You have the love being expressed and experienced and you have a picture of the church that is on this earth. In chapter 3 through chapter 8, you have the events that take place after the rapture, and you have the consummation of the marriage. The church had been tried on earth, now the church is triumphant up in heaven. And you find the church is literally, bodily, been raptured out in chapter 2, we're going to see it in a moment, and the church now is in heaven. Now, I don't know if you understand this, all of this or not, but the Song of Solomon... Uh, is one of those strange books like the book of Esther. And I don't know if you've ever caught this or not, but you're going to find, as I've told before when we study the book of, of Esther, that Esther was the strangest book in the Bible because God is not mentioned anywhere, shape, or form, or even alluded to anywhere in the book of Esther. Now, the book of Song of Solomon is almost like that. Though you find the Lord Jesus Christ expressing Himself in many passages, and really the whole book is a viewpoint of Christ looking at the church and then the church looking at Christ. And you find Christ in every concept and every aspect of the chapters. You don't find him named in any way, shape, or form. And the reason for that is, is because in the book of Song of Solomon, you find the rapture. In the book of Song of Solomon, you find the church. And both of those, we are told, are mysteries uh, to the body of Christ. The rapture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the church in Ephesians chapter 5. And you're going to find the book of Song of Solomon is a picture of the mind of Christ. And oh, here comes the next greatest thing that you better grasp about the book of Song of Solomon because it shows you the beginnings of how these things work. I don't know if you know it or not, but when you study the book of Song of Solomon and you come to the realization that the book of Song of Solomon is the mind of Christ, you were struck by the great fact by this book that the only thing on Christ's mind, the only thing on Christ's mind is His bride. 
You see, we get it all backwards because we don't understand the difference between God the Father, God the Spirit, God the, Holy, God the Son. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, number one thing on his mind in his anticipation is the bride that he has been espoused to. He thinks about her constantly. And when you come book through the book of Song of Solomon... <clears throat> When you come through this great book, which expresses to us the mind of Christ, you don't find anything about the second coming. You don't find anything about the rapture. Those are things that are God's of table of events. That's on God's calendar. Christ has one thing on his mind this morning, and one thing only. His bride. And with that in mind, we need to stop and think all of the things that we have on our mind this morning that doesn't include him. You know what? The book of Song of Solomon does what no other book in the Bible does. It really does. It lays out for me and it shows me exactly, exactly what and how Christ looks at me and what he sees in me as his bride. Now this is absolutely vital. In fact, there are two things that it shows. And in these two things, we find the definition of what our personal relationship should be with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And when you see it and you understand it, it takes away once and for all everything that we have about our relationship with Christ that is a myth. And it brings you back to the hard reality that there's the one thing on his mind, and that is you. And the one thing on your mind and my mind should be about him. And it lays out for us, first of all, and for me, and shows me exactly how Christ looks at me, and what he thinks when he sees me. Now this, for a Christian, is absolutely vital. It is absolutely vital. Now all of us have to have in our character makeup a good dose of self-worth. Self-worth is not bad. Obviously you can get out of balance and turn into pride or take it in, in you know, your, your ego or whatever, but everybody has to feel good about themselves. Now, self-worth is based on how we, first of all, it's based on how we perceive ourselves with other people. And then it's based, secondly, on how much we think other people perceive us, whether we're equal, whether we're inferior, whether we're superior. And uh, when it comes to a Christian, there's no greater asset that you have to have than your self-worth as a child of God. You have to know who you are in Christ. And if I'm speaking to someone who is just beginning to put the Word of God into your life and begin to learn some things and put some things together for yourself, let me tell you something. You will never do anything meaningful for the Lord Jesus Christ until you are secure in who you are in Christ. You'll never do anything in a relationship with any individual till you're secure in that relationship. It's your job's the same way. Till you're secure in your job, you're always kind of antsy and nervous about doing the right thing. Once you learn the job, once you know the job, once you have confidence in the job, then you uh, are really at your best to fulfill yourself, and that's where you find your self-worth. Knowing who you are in Christ as a Christian. Now, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11, 12, and 13 are the greatest verses in the Bible that talk about you knowing for sure you're saved. And it goes like this. And this is the record. God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Then he says this. These things 
have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life and that ye may believe on the Son of God. The Bible says that God has given you a written record that you know for sure you're saved. That is a vital step in your life and your self-worth. Understanding your relationship in Christ, knowing now that you're saved, how Christ looks at you, and then the next verse, verse 14, is a great verse, and it says this. This, then, is the confidence that we have in Him. Your confidence in Christ, your confidence as a child of God of who you are, comes because of your understanding, first of all, how God looks at you and how God views you. This is what my job is. My job as a pastor is to edify you. That's why I take the time before I preach this message to kind of weed it out a little bit and tell you, hey, if you're just starting to get your feet on the ground, I don't want you going out of here today feeling bad because you don't understand or have the things that I'm talking about. No, no. My job is to edify you to help you get to that point where you do. Now, if you've been saved 5, 10, 15, 20 years, now that's a different story. And maybe you become lax in your life. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Now, if we as God's people do not understand how God and Christ views us now that we are saved, we will never develop the relationship that we desire to have Christ in our lives the way that we should. And you're going to fall into that mystical, magical dream world that 95% of God's people live in that think they have a relationship with God when they really don't. We're going to talk about that in just a minute also. Now, I find people all my life that are afraid of God. They're afraid of God because of the fact that they think God is out to get them. They think that when something bad happens in their life that God was out waiting for them just to screw up so God could drop the hammer on them. And, you know, they're always waiting for the next foot to fall. You find people who, who, uh, 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 who, who feel that God can't ever forgive them for, for what they've done. And they live that life of fear. You find God's people that just have a hard time trusting Him. You have a God's people that believe they can lose their salvation and all of their lives they struggle walking around uh, feeling that guilt, feeling that pressure, and you know what? All of that comes because, and I'm telling you, every heresy within the body of Christ, everything that we struggle with that goes against our relationship with God simply comes down to you and I not understanding how God looks at us. And when you understand how God looks at us, when you understand how God looks at you, it forms the self-worth in your life that you don't have to be shaken by bad things in life. You know exactly how God looks at those circumstances and you know how God looks at you within those circumstances and you know exactly how God is going to react to you in those circumstances. You don't walk around as fear of God that God is going to give you cancer because you did something stupid in your life. And now, he may give you cancer, but it won't be because he's out to get you revengeful. He, it's because God only puts things in our lives that help us. And we've got the, when you understand how he looks at you, when you understand that you and I, as the body of Christ, are the only thing on his mind today, you don't see him as a revengeful God. You don't see him as a God that's out to hurt you. You don't see him as a God is out to take advantage of you. You see him as he is, 
a loving bridegroom waiting with anticipation for the day the marriage can be consummated together and we can begin to spend eternity, that eternal honeymoon, where he and I will be together, where you and him will be together. And wow, what a great day that will be. And I'm getting ahead of myself because I've got to save that for the last punch here. Now, the second thing it does. The second thing it does, it not only shows how Christ looks at me exactly, but it shows and lays out exactly how I should look at Christ. And as you lay out this great concept, and you see how Christ looks at me, and then we begin to study, as we're going to do here in a minute, how I should look at Christ, you'll find a lot of different characteristics. Now, we're going to go through those, because I want you to see and understand how it plays out. Really important. But the one thing you have got to see is that there are two parts or two components that are the same. And that has to do with his eyes. The Bible says in Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 12 that Christ has the eyes of a dove. When he talks about the church in chapter 1 verse 15, he says the church has the eyes of a dove. That begins to show me that the number one thing that I have to begin to do, and oh, this is so hard. But if you're a young Christian, this is, the, this is why I teach the Bible the way that I do. This is why we have Thursday night Bible study the way we do. This is why I work with anybody one-on-one because it is my job and my task to teach you how to look at things as he looks at things, that your eyes and his eyes are the same. You have got to come to the point in your life where you see things not as you see them, not as you perceive them. But going back to the Bible, seeing them as they are defined in the Word of God and laid out in the Word of God for you and for me. And of course, this is where, uh, this is where we find so many problems today. One of the best books in the Bible to ever help you build a relationship with Christ is the book of 1 John. John, the, the, the guy who writes the Gospel of John, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he also writes the book of Revelation. The Apostle John is one of the most unique men in all of the Bible. He's the only man when he writes his books, has the complete Old Testament, and you know, he writes the last books of the Bible. And when he writes the book of Revelation, he, is the, he has something that nobody else, no other writer in the Bible has. He has the complete Old Testament, really, the completed Bible. Everything in the Bible has been written up to his writings. And he has the perspective of writing from seeing everything the way that it is. Now, John, as we've talked about many times, is a representation and a picture of what your life and my life should be with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you find John in Solomon chapter 2. You had to look for him sometime. And will you want to find him? Ask me sometime if you can't find him, and I'll show it to you. But you know what? John, the book of 1 John, Every book I ever read on it, and I've read probably 50 books on it, commentaries, you know, books about it. Every writer I ever, every writer I ever read always told me in his book, in his writing, that the theme of 1 John, the theme of 1 John was love. How many times I have heard that? How many times I've heard preachers say that? And yet, it didn't take much on my part. I began to read it for myself one day, and I began to find a little word or a combination of words, built around the word to know. And I found that in five little chapters, 27 times, he uses this word to know, or you should know, 
and it became very obvious to me that the, the theme of 1 John wasn't love. The theme of 1 John was to know. And I stood back for a moment and I thought about that. And I thought to myself, how typical that is. How typical that is, first of all, of Americans. How typical of it, second of all, of Christians. Americans fall in love with things. And it doesn't matter if the things can love them back or not. Now, I don't have a problem with falling in love with your dog. Because your dog can love you back. If you have a cat, I don't have a problem with that. You say, I love my cat, I understand that. A cat will show you affection back. But loving a car, loving a dress, loving a hat, loving a house, loving something that does not have the ability to love you back has never made any sense to me. And that's because we as Americans don't understand the Bible definition of love. We fall in love with things, and then when they wear off, when they're not pretty anymore, or when it's not this or not that, we fall out of love with them. And we carry that same concept into our relationship with God. The reason why there's only a th one out of a thousand, according to the Bible, there's only one virtuous woman that the type of God the Father could find when he was looking for a virtuous woman, one out of a thousand, is because we as Christians fall in love with God, never letting to know Him, because to know Him is how you love Him. And we fall in love with God, and then we fall out of love with God. And that is exactly why in churches across this country, in Christian circles all around this world, People come to church, they go to revival meetings, they go to this, they come down, they make a profession of faith, they want to get saved on the moment, and then two weeks later, you never see them again, you never hear from them again, they got a better deal, they fell in love with God one night, and then three weeks later, found something else, somebody else, and they fell out of love with Him, and now that's what they love. God's people have such a shallow understanding of the word love that we love things before we know them. And then when we get to know them, we don't love them as much as we did. And that's why we've got the problems that we've got today, not only in America, but in our marriages and everything else that we've got in our Christian life. Because we talk about loving God. I have never met a Christian who, said, who, never, who did not say, I love God. No Christian in his right mind would get up and say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't love God. We talk about loving Him, and our mouth says how much we love Him. But the truth of the matter is, it's your life that shows whether you really know Him or not. There's a book that every Christian ought to read. Every Christian ought to read this book. And it's not a Christian book. But its concepts are infinite as far as Christians are concerned, and it is so true. I found over the years, and you've got to be careful doing this, but I've found over my years that you can learn much more about my, your relationship with God and things about God from unsaved people writing about it who don't have anything to know about it than from the saved people who think they know about it. But this is a great book. And everybody ought to read this book once a year. You probably already read it if you've been in high school. But it's a simple book, and it's not written by a Christian. It was written by Hans, Hans Christian Anderson. Now, you know what the name of that book is? The Emperor's New Clothes. 
Now, y'all, how many read that? How many ever read that book? It's a simple book. Let me tell you, for those that don't read, haven't read it. Here's the deal. You got a king. You got a little boy. And you got a tailor. Now, the king was so puffed up with his own who he was that he had lost his perspective. And a tailor came in and said that he was going to make him a new suit of clothes that was going to be the most splendid clothes that he ever made. Now the king, puffed up by he deserved all that, said that's the greatest thing. And the tailor went to work making a set of clothes that nobody could see. And he took these invisible clothes on a, on a day, took them to the king. The king, wanting to believe that this was beautiful, took his clothes off, is standing naked, and puts on this invisible suit of clothes, when in actuality, he's as naked as a jaybird. And then, struts down through the kingdom. Everybody was afraid to tell the king, <laughs> you're naked. You know why? Because the king didn't want to hear it. He was so deluded of who he was, so caught up with the fact that he was king, that he had fallen into the trap where even though he's standing there naked because someone told him how the clothes looked and everybody around him said, oh, they're the greatest clothes uh, they, ever, they ever saw and they're all in there and he's walking around absolutely naked and he walks down through the kingdom in a big coronation parade waving to everybody and everybody's saying, the king looks so glorious, look at those clothes because everybody bought into the concept that he had clothes on when he was naked, except one little boy. Now the little boy stepped out and prayed and said, Hey, you ain't got no clothes on! One little kid was willing to tell the king that he was naked when the whole world said he was clothed. Now I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. That story is a picture of the Laodicean church. Because the Bible says in first, uh, Revelation chapter 3 that it thinks it's clothed, it thinks it's great, and it thinks it's got everything it needs, when in reality it's naked. And I'm going to tell you something else. That story's a picture of God's people today because God's people are walking around with these pretend clothes on because they think having a relationship with God is everything but what the Bible says it is. And they're walking around saying, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, look at me. And in actuality, at the judgment seat of Christ, the reality is going to be they're naked because the clothes that they think they have are trumped up, made up clothes of self-righteousness when the truth of the matter is the, the, the clothes that you get at the judgment seat of Christ are built on building your relationship with Christ the way the Bible says in the book of Song of Solomon, you need to build it. And if you don't understand how he's looking at you and you don't understand how to look at him you have the wrong attitude about him and you're walking around God's people are walking around today like that emperor and he's walking around like he's got clothes on when he's naked because somebody told him these are the kind of clothes you want and somebody's told Christianity today how to have the wrong kind of relationship with Christ they bought into it because they don't believe that book and now they're walking around like they're clothed when they're naked We all better take a reality check today in our own relationship with Christ. Oh, I'm not saying you're not saved. 
I'm saying your personal relationship has to do with your attitude of how you understand he sees you and you see him and you're looking at things in light through his eyes. With that in mind, my friend, let's walk through the book of Song of Solomon for a moment. And let's look at this mind of Christ that only has one thing on his mind, and that's you. Now, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he starts this great book out, and I'll tell you what. If this doesn't say something about God, because this book is the mind of Christ, and if this book doesn't say, lay it out of how God sees you and how you should see him and how he looks at you, then I don't know what else does. Because he opens this book and he says this, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his love is better than wine. Because of the Savior of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, and we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine, the upright love thee. Now, I don't know if you know what you've got there, but when he opens this great book where he's beginning to talk about you and me, you know the first thing he does? The first thing he does is talk about the day that he saved me. Now, in my life, it happened 48 years ago in my life, and you know what? As far as Christ's concerned, according to that book, it's just like it happened yesterday. The first thing he talks about is when him and I met and he saved me. And I want to tell you something else. He never forgets that day, but some of us have. And when you begin to forget the day that God saved you, you're on your way out. You're on your way out. The moment you begin to forget what he did for you on that day. You see, he never forgets. And when he begins to open up this great book that talks about me and him, him and me, and he shows me the intimate relationship that he wants to have with me, how I should have with him. The first thing he goes to, the first place he starts, is the day he saved my soul. And he says down there in verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That is the day God's Son kissed your naked soul and gave you the glorious eternal life. It has been... Shammed. It has been made into movies. It has been made into fairy tales. It has been made into every aspect that Hollywood and the world can do it. But I want to tell you something. The one that comes to my mind is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I mean, there she is. She's down there. And what happened? Some wicked witch over there brings her a what? Poison apple. She eats that apple and she falls down there and she's dead. And she lays on that bed. And then she's got the seven dwarfs who have to fit in to be fundamental Baptist preachers or someplace like that. And those seven dwarfs, and she sits down there, and one day, one day her prince comes, and when that prince comes, he kisses her, and he gives her life, who had taken a poison fruit, and she got life, and they lived together happily ever after. That's the day I'm talking about. I'm talking about the day God came down from heaven, took on the body of a man, saw you and me in our sins, wrapped his arms around it, and with a kiss of that book, gave us eternal life. He said, let him kiss us with his mouth. Well, he says, thy love is better than wine. I don't know how to say it any better than this. It just simply means this. Anything that God's got for you is better than anything in the world's got for you. Oh, I know some of you young folks think you can get out there and have a great time, run with this crowd, run with that, do this and do that, but that's just because you're stupid. Let me tell you something. I'm speaking from experience. Listen to your mom and dad. They're speaking from experience. There is nothing, nothing, nothing on this earth to a match 
my love of my Savior. There isn't any joy, any fun, anything you can get into, anything you can do that gives you pleasure for a moment that'll give you the peace of the love of God in your life. Then he says in verse 4, he says, draw me. That's what he did. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says, the Holy Spirit has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John chapter 1 verse 9 says, he was the true light that cometh, light of every man that cometh into the world. Romans chapter 3 says, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There was nothing in you and me that would make us go to God. God came to us. He touched me first. Then he have to respond to that. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. My response, draw me. We run after thee. That's me. My response was, I ain't waiting. I saw in Hebrews chapter 3 how he said to the nation of Israel, how shall you escape? You neglect so great a salvation. I saw over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, behold, today's the day of salvation. And I ran after him when I heard the story. Then verse 4 says, brought me into his chambers. Oh, that's the day God saved me. Oh, you think chambers, you know, oh yeah, well let me go tell you, go back to Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 12 and you'll get a definition of the Bible of chambers. It's the chambers of somebody's mind. And when God saved me, he didn't just save my soul, he brought my mind into his mind. And that's why he says in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Because the chambers here are the chambers of his mind. Verse 4, glad and rejoice, there's my fellowship, walking in the light as he is in the light, remembering thy love. That's the Lord's Supper, a time of remembrance, that 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, as often as you do, do this in remembrance of me. Number one issue, God have the nation of Israel. They didn't remember what God had done for them. Then he says, lastly, for thy love is more than wine. And I'm going to say it again, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing in this world that can compare with a love of Almighty God. Then we come into chapter 2. Well, chapter 2, and oh, there's so much more in chapter 1, but we don't have time to do it. We're going to barely make it today. Chapter 2, my bridegroom cometh. Rapture the church. Read it with me. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As a lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow. He's like an apple tree. You sit down under the shadow. Back in the 40s, they had a song that went like this. Don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else but me. That's what God wants. That's what he wants. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons. Comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, watch it, watch it, watch it, by the rose and by the hinds, watch it, watch it, of the field that you stir not up nor awake my love till we please. Here it comes. Here he comes. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh. This is the church talking about Christ. He becometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe, a young heart, both fast animals. You only catch a glimpse of. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved, Christ, spake unto me, the church, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of the birds has come. The voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Watch it, verse 13. The fig tree, Israel, putteth forth green figs, and the vines with a tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one. Come away. Rapture to church. We're gone. 
Say, how do you know that? I had somebody say one time, well, I don't see that in there. And I said, well, don't tell anybody that. I wouldn't make that public. Not around anybody that believes the Bible, anyhow. You say, now, how do you know that? Well, I don't have to. I can read you somebody's going. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Rapture takes place in chapter 2. Look at verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. There's somebody on earth after the rapture of the church looking to find Christ, and they can't find him. He's gone. He's gone. By the way, I'm gone too. Then what do you got in chapter 4, Bob? Chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Let's read it. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof every one beareth twins, and none of them is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. Thy deck is like the Tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hanging a thousand bucklers and shields, all of mighty men. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins which feed among the lilies. You know what you've got? You've got a picture here in chapter 4. The church is now up in heaven. And Christ looks at his bride on his wedding day and sees her in all his glory. Look at verse 7. He says, Thou art fair, that art, thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. You know why? But Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 said, The bride hath made her wealth ready. She'd been to the judgment seat, of Christ, judgment seat of Christ. The book of Ephesians says, There's no spot or wrinkle in her. It's all been taken care of at the judgment seat of Christ. And now we stand there. And what follows is how he sees me, how he sees you and me. Listen, I'm telling you this, and you better hear it. There is no reason on this earth for you as a Christian or me as a Christian to wind up at the judgment seat of Christ and lose anything. God gives you every aspect. God, if the judgment seat of Christ is built on attitude of heart, he tells you what your attitude of heart should be. He shows you what his attitude is toward you. He even gives you the questions he's going to ask in the book of Job. You have everything in this Bible to prepare you for that day when you stand there. In chapter 4, you got the church is now up in heaven. The judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what you find here is seven great concepts. Christ to the church. When he sees you and me, there's your seven things that he sees. And these are seven things that you and I need to understand and have in our lives. And let me just tell you, you won't get anything out of the Hebrew nuggets or the past tense article, the aorist tense of the verb. You get this out of comparing the English with the English in a King James 1611 authorized version or you're as blind as a bat backing in backwards. Because these things by themselves don't make much sense. Look at verse, uh, look at verse, uh, Look at verse 1. He says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eye. Well, that's pretty good. Within thy locks. Thy hair is a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Now, don't ever try that on Sunday morning when your wife's getting ready for church and trying to make some points. When she's ready to go out on a Saturday night and she wants you to tell you how lovely you are, don't walk in there and say, Honey, I'll tell you what. Your hair looks like a bunch of goats on Mount Gilead. Don't think that's going to make it. In fact, one time I had to, I got a person who was, he took all these things in here and made a composite of what this woman looked like when you took all these things from the Bible and put them together. She was the ugliest woman you ever saw in your life. You know what I'm telling you? 
I'm telling you, these are things that are defined in the Bible. These things won't come out on a piece of paper. These things won't come out by somebody getting up and, and these things are based on what this book says these things are. And if you want the deep picture of what God sees in you, then you better go to these places and find out what these things are. Let's talk about some of them. Well, we already talked about the dove's eyes in verse 1. Thou hast dove's eyes, but then there's an added deal. We know that dove's eyes, his eyes, my eyes, we see things the same. But then it says this, eyes within thy locks. She's looking through her hair. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that a picture of a woman's hair is a picture of her submission. What we got here is seeing what Christ sees through the submissiveness of the Word of God. Verse 1 says, Hair, flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Doesn't sound very exciting. Not till you come to the Bible and you realize that not only does she understand submissiveness, but she understands sacrifice because goats are one of the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament for the sin offering. Not only that, goats produce milk. She's a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. She understands what is her reasonable service. At Mount Gilead, you go to Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 19, Micah chapter 7, verse 14, Mount Gilead will represent a place where they watered the flocks, they watered the sheep, they watered the goats, they were well fed, they were well pastured. It's a picture of the satisfaction that you get in the Word of God, of being well fed, well watered in the plan of God. And this woman not only is submissive in her time to the Word of God, she's content and she's complete in her relationship with Christ. Verse 2 says, don't try this one either. Teeth like a flock of sheep. Teeth needed to form teeth are needed to form words. We call it enunciation. It says they're even shorn. She speaks with balance. It says that they're washed. Her mouth washes the word of God. None barren. We all heard the little kid before he gets his teeth in, he can't pronounce words and he whistles his words. This woman doesn't have any teeth gone. She speaks clearly because she speaks based on biblical principles. Her lips, verse 3, are like a scarlet thread. Her words are binding. Go back to Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, Rahab the harlot and that whole story there, and you'll get the concept of that. I mean, Ecclesiastes 4.12, we have more light to it, talks about a three-fold cord not easily broken. That scarlet thread is a picture of the binding of the Word of God. This woman has the Word of God in her life. She speaks the Word of God. Therefore, what she says is binding. In verse 7, her temples are like pomegranates. Pomegranates are, are, are pieces of fruit that represent the fullness, the happiness of life. It, it contains many seeds. It's very red, very juicy. It represents a wholesome life. You don't have to go to the Bible to figure it out. All you've got to do is look at some woman who's grown up with God, loving God, and loving, living right, versus someone who rode up in a, in a running out on Saturday night and Friday night and every chance you get. By the time they're 50 year old, one of them looks like she just stepped out of a blooming garden of roses. It doesn't look like her face is a road map for the Sahara Desert. You wear where you've been on your face. Down here in verse, uh, oh, the pomegranates were in verse 3, excuse me. Verse 4, thy neck is like the Tower of David. Oh, what a study that is. Neck in the Bible represents two things. It represents the will of man. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16, and it represents the will of God in your life, Psalms 18, Psalm 61. And what a study, the study tower in the Word of God. What a study. Obviously, we don't have time to do it today. Then the last thing in verse 5, he says this, 
Thy two breasts are like two young roes that are twins which feed among the lilies. Talking about the sensitivity of the church, the emotional balance of the church, the tenderness of the church, the fact that breasts sustain milk, that give life, sustain life. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, that young Christians, as newborn babes, desire to sincere milk of the word. That's our job, is to feed young Christians. The Bible says they're twins, showing you that she's even balanced in her emotions. Oh, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. That in chapter 5, in chapter 5, verses 9 through 16, he says this. Now, where we saw, we saw the one place was a picture of, of, of the uh, Christ to the church. Now we've got the church to Christ. And down here in 5, pick it up in verse uh, 9 here. What is my beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved thou dost so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are the eyes of doves by the river of waters washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as the bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling mirth. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel, his belly as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether, great word, altogether. Everything about him is lovely. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. What you've got here in these verses is a picture of what your attitude should be toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He already showed you how you saw him. Now, I, these, are just, these are just templates. I mean, this whole thing, this whole book is filled going back and forth. I just picked the one for the sake of time to give you an understanding how this thing book, but looks. But I'm telling you right now, these are things that you ought to be your... This is where your relationship with Christ really comes to life. Otherwise, you're just like the emperor with your new clothes and you're naked, man. For the first time, for the first time, in chapter 5, the church is up in heaven now. And for the first time, most of God's people will see him as it's laid out here, as the Bible lays him out, and as he really is. You know what the tragedy of that is? All your Christian life, you should have seen him just like this. There should be no surprises about who you're looking for at the judgment seat of Christ when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in him are the qualities that make a woman love a man. The woman being the church, and the man being Christ. And that brings up another interesting thing I thought about when I was putting this together. You know in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when all the people that the Lord comes up against, you find the Sadducees, the scribes, all the different stories about the different people. You realize that in the New Testament there isn't one woman. There isn't one woman in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that ever rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a one. You know why? Because he has within his character the characteristics that, make a, that, that a woman are looking for, and within his makeup and in his character are the things that make a woman love him. And I'm telling you, it's incredible. It's incredible. And when you want to have a relationship with God, you can have the smoky, dokey, folky, funny little thing all around your life and you can pretend all you want and you can say well I do this and I do that but until you get into the book of Song of Solomon and that book becomes what it intended to be God's love letter to you 
where he shows you what he thinks about you and you show him what you think about him, you're wasting your time. You are absolutely wasting your time. Go get a beer, man. Enjoy life because you ain't getting anything from God from it. It comes back to his way or no way. Verse 10. Verse 10. He said, my beloved is white. He's pure. Has the right values. Has a good value system. Someone down the line that she can, she can trust in. Knowing the woman's a weaker vessel, as the Bible lays out, in her emotional side. Someplace down the line that the kids, the family growing up, will have the right values because dad will put those first. The Bible says, picture, uh, he's ruddy, red, red-brown. That's what ruddy means. Like Adam. Adam means red-brown. It's showing you the fact that he has right values, but at the same time, he's a man's man. Uh, these pictures of Christ that you see, that you can buy. Looks like a frail little arrow Flynn someplace with a long brown flowing hair, you know, and that European look. Let me tell you something. The Bible gives you a definition of Christ in the Old Testament to show you that he was a man's man. He wasn't somebody that was a, he wasn't somebody that was a wimp. He wasn't somebody that, that he was a leader. And the Bible says that he was white. He had pure motives. He had pure values. He had the right values, but he was ruddy, red-brown. He worked long hours in the carpenter shop. He worked out in the sun. He was someone that had some muscle to him. He was someone that wasn't afraid. Well, my goodness, friend, for him to be able, as a human man, to be able to ever endure what he endured before he ever got to the cross, he had to be substance as the best running back you could find on this planet today. Yet the Bible says that he's the chiefest among 10,000. He's a leader. He's a, peop he's a person that people want to follow. There are, there are a number of characteristics that we need to have as leaders. A number of characteristic qualities that a man or a woman need to have to be the leader that God wants them to be, that people will follow. People don't follow you because you get a name tag that says, I am the leader. People follow you because they see qualities in your life that they want to emulate, and that's Christ. That's Christ. And boy, you want to you take a study. There's another one. The Bible says in verse 11, his head is his most fine gold. Gold represents deity in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. The Bible says the head of Christ, the head of God, uh, the head of man is Christ. It shows you that he's the God-man. Then it says his locks are bushy and black as a raven. That's the human side. Not only was, the, he was, was he the divine son of God, but he was the divine son of man. He was God, but he was man. He was human. And he was tempted on all points like us, yet without sin. Oh, the, the implications are incredible. Verse 12 says that his eyes <coughs> are the eyes of doves. You know, the eyes <coughs> are the seat of expression. They've been called the windows to the soul. <coughs> Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, that the light of the eye, uh, the light of the body is the eye. And yet, when you look at this thing, you'll find that the eyes, there's three parts of your body that take things in. And they all affect, they all affect the three parts of your, your spiritual body. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. What you hear affects your spirit. That's the music you listen to. What you, what you eat affects your body. That's your physical body. And what you see affects your soul. And the Bible says <coughs> that his eyes, his eyes are his dove's eyes. His eyes are by the rivers of waters. Psalm 119, verse 36 says, Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. He's someone that can be touched with the word of God. The Bible says that he washed with milk. 
The eye wash that he uses is the Word of God. It keeps him seeing things clean. The Bible says those eyes are fitly set. He has 20-20 vision. He sees things right. He focuses on the right issues. Goes back to that value system. He's able to see things as they are based on the Word of God, not as they appear through the emotions of what he's going through. Bible says in verse 13, his cheeks. His cheeks represent the fullness of the joy of life, peace, grace, it's a lot like Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, when Moses came down from the mountain when he'd been with God. And the Bible says that his face shone like the sun. That's the face of Christ. In fact, this is the face, my friend, that, that Moses wasn't allowed to see. <clears throat> this is why in the Exodus, when he turns and he's meeting with God face to face, God says, you can see my hinder part, but my face you shall not see. Nobody could see the face because the face is the glory of God, and that face is glory is only revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, the Bible says in the New Testament. A lot of things get figured out when you just read your Bible. His lips, dropping sweet-smelling mirth, picture of the Word of God, never saying anything to hurt you, only saying things to help you. Bible says in verse 14 or 15, his hands, gold rings set with barrel, his belly, bright ivory overlaid with sacrifice. Oh, so many things. His legs, got to look at this one. His legs, pillars of marble, marble being the hardest stone. It's made from tombstone because it lasts so long through the generations. Set upon sockets of gold like the cedars of Lebanon. It's a picture of his stand on doctrine and the word of God, which is unmovable. The Bible says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. His legs are like marble, set upon gold like the cedars of Lebanon. And then lastly, his mouth, <coughs> the word of God. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is <coughs> altogether lovely. <coughs> this is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. <clears throat> then in chapter 6, chapter 6, very quickly, <clears throat> we have the second coming of Christ. He says in verse 4, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Tizra comingly as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Go to Revelation chapter 19. You'll find that's the church. You'll find up in verses 8, 9, and 10 a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb which takes place right at the time of the second coming of Christ. All the components are here, verse 8. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. There's the, there's the household of God talked about in the book of Ephesians. There's the queens. There's the concubines. There's the virgins. There's Ephesians 2, John 14. Oh, there's everything you need. He says down there, my, my dove. Watch this. My dove. That's you and me. My undefiled is but one. She's a virgin. She's only one. One of a thousand, it's the church. The only one of her mother. She is the choice of her that bear her. The daughter saw her, Israel, and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, clear as the moon type of the church, clear as the sun type of Christ, and terrible as an army with banners? Second coming of Christ. Then chapter 7 and 8. <clears throat> chapter 7 is the millennium. Oh, why not? It's chapter 7, 7,000 years after Christ, after man's on this earth. Why not? Fits right in there. Watch this. Oh, what another great study. How beautiful are the feet. Watch it. With shoes. Oh, princess daughter, the joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of thy hands like cunning workmen. You want a great study? Study why the feet are only beautiful when they have shoes on. That'll take you a while, and brother, it'll show you some things about your own relationship with Christ. Look at verse 10 and 13. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, 
Let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. <clears throat> Let us get up early in the vineyards. <clears throat> Let us see if the vine flourishes where the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates there are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. You know what you got, folks, this whole book. Chapter 1, he goes back and he talks about the day that he saves you. Chapter 2, he talks about the day he come for you. Chapter 3, 4, talks about being up in heaven and Christ speaking to the bride. In chapter 5, <clears throat> you got the bride, just the reverse. In chapter 6, you have the second coming of Christ and the marriage supper. And in chapter 7 and 8, you have a picture of what takes place in the millennium. Oh, I'm telling you, look at verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early in the vineyards and let us see if the vine flourishes. You know what you got? You got a picture in the millennium of you and Christ walking on this old earth in the field, checking the vineyard, Israel, just like it must have been in that little garden of God back in Genesis with Adam and God when they met in the cool of the day. Going for a walk with God in the millennium where it says, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the village. Walking down through there, checking on the vines, checking on the pomegranate, checking on the grapes, checking on the vineyard, just how it must have been in the garden of God. And I'm telling you what, oh, the only thing on his mind, the only thing on Christ's mind today is you. And the book of Song of Sodom lays out that relationship that you have with him, that you should have with him, that he wants to have with you. And I'm telling you, um, it doesn't get any better than that. It's no wonder the Bible says that his love is better than anything this world has to offer. I'm telling you, I know the world gets clouded right now. The devil tries to bring in everything in this world to run a competitive thing against Christ and what he's got for you. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than this. This whole thing is God's plan. This whole thing is going God's way. And when it's all said and done, I'm going to tell you, it's going to be you and him walking on that earth, walking on that garden, looking at all the things. And I'm telling you, my friend, it's going to be the most unbelievable. It's going to be the most beautiful relationship that you have ever seen or ever had in anything on this earth could ever offer to it. But I need to say this to you. If you're not taking those walks with him now, don't expect to be taking them with him there. The sober truth is simply this, my friend, one out of a thousand. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Christ looking for a bride who's looking for him as much as he is looking for her. And that telling you, that's why we're all so many of God's people walk around today just like that emperor, thinking they're clothed when they're naked because of their own pride, because of their own stuff, because of all the things they've got on. They've got themselves so deluded. They're so far out of touch with God and the Bible. They have absolutely no reference point in their relationship with Christ. And they go to church. They do all the things they're supposed to do. And they go every place. And they don't go with places they're not supposed to. And they talk the right language. And they wear the right clothes. And they do everything. But the bottom line is that isn't your relationship with God. Your relationship with Christ is you and Him walking down this old field of this old earth every day right now hand in hand him telling you how much you love him you telling him how much you love him walking hand in hand in preparation for the day you come literally in hand in hand and walk down this old world side by side the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm telling you it's based on your attitude and your attitude is based on what this book says and I'm telling you for the last time 
I'm going to be done, but I'm telling you this, and you better hear me. You better take a reality check of where you're at in your own personal relationship with God because it simply comes down to you seeing Him the way He sees you and understanding how He sees you and you building that consistency in your life that right now there's no surprises. You know who He is. You know what you get. You know what He expects. And you know that the number one thing in His life isn't the United Nations. It isn't the elections coming up in 30 days. It isn't the trials and tribulations that's going on on this earth. The number one thing in Christ's mind is he cannot wait to get the bride that he has been espoused to. He cannot wait. By it tells you in chapter 2 that long before he comes, he's looking through the window at you. He's looking down through the lattice and all those things mean something in the Bible. He's grabbing a peek here, grabbing a peek there because he can't wait to get his bride. And that is the same attitude you and I ought to have toward him. There ought to be nothing, 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 nobody, nothing on this planet that makes that relationship with him or takes away from that relationship with him that you don't look at him just like he looks at you. Song of Solomon is an incredible book. And it ends the wisdom books. And it ends it fitly so. Because we've come through the sufferings of Christ. We've come through the heart of God. We've come through the mind of God. We've come through the mind of the Spirit. And now we've come through the mind of Christ. And you leave here knowing for sure now that the only thing on His mind is you. And the things in this book is what makes you in your relationship. It's not what you say. It's what you do and how you live your life. It's do the principles in this book, can you see them in my life? Hey, I'm going to tell you something right now. Don't ever just listen to what I say. Watch what I do. And if what I do doesn't line up with what I say, if my family doesn't line up with what I preach, if my personal walk with God doesn't line up with what I, with what I preach, then you need to find someplace else and somewhere else to go. Because I'm shamming you just like everybody else. Let me tell you something. The accountability of the Word of God starts here and runs right down the line. And I don't ask anything of you that I do not ask of myself. Because it all comes down to the relationship we have one-on-one -on -one with Him. And I'm just telling you, I don't want you to get to the judgment seat of Christ and be like that emperor. I don't want you to get there and find the reality you thought you'd been clothed when all the time you were naked. Why, there is just about 99% of everything going on in Christianity. People think that it's what Christianity is and God is in 100,000 light years around it. And we could take them one at a time on a Thursday night and go through them and go to the Bible and see where they don't fit into what God says. But you know what? The whole Christian world thinks it's clothed when the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 that it's naked. It can't see, it can't hear, and it's naked. It thinks it has everything when in reality it has nothing. Boy, God help us as Christians, individual Christians, not as a church, as individual Christians, to don't fall into that trap that you think you have everything going when you have nothing going because the relationship is based on with a book and what he says and what you do with it in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you now. Thank you for today. Pray, Father, that you'll take this, take this.